good to be with you, church. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, this word, is His word. It's His word. It's what He said. It's what He wanted to be penned. It's His. And though it be thousands of years old, though it was penned that long ago, it's still just as powerful. It's still just as alive. It's still just as effective. It's not outdated. It doesn't need to stop being talked about. It's just as relevant now as it was when it was written. Period. The Word of God is both timeless and always timely. It's timeless and always timely. Tonight we're going to dive into a passage from 2 Kings chapter 5. And in this passage we read about a man named Naaman. And we're going to dive into this in just a moment. But we're going to pull out four different things, four lessons you can learn that you can pull out, that you can apply to your life tonight that are both timeless and, I believe, timely. I believe these things we're going to pull out tonight, maybe you're going through it, maybe you're going to go through it in the future. Man, I wish I could learn the easy way. Like, I wish I could hear someone else's story and just learn from that instead of having to go through it myself. And I believe those stories are all through the Bible, stories that want to help you out. God wants to help you out. God doesn't always want you to have to learn the hard way, people. I'm talking to myself. Amen? So we're going to dive into this story, 2 Kings chapter 5. And I, I, I preached this in youth over a month ago. And when I preached it, it has never left me. I knew that I was going to preach this again. I just didn't know when. And tonight is that night. So here we go. Not a, not a catchy title, not an attractive title, but simply Lessons Learned from Naaman. That's what the title of this sermon is tonight. Lessons Learned from Naaman, and I hope you learn these lessons tonight, not just hear them, but actually apply them to your life in Jesus' name. Let's go to his word. 2 Kings 5, 2 Kings 5, going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump down to 9 and read to 18. 2 Kings 5, 1 through 6, then 9 through 18, and this is what it says. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in, And told his Lord, thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. 
And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. Jumping down to verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar and the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before him who I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into his house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. Now that was a lot. I read that kind of fast. That's a lot. So I'm going to just give you a quick review of what just happened right here, Second Kings Five, you awake out there? Yeah. All right, sweet. So we see a man, and his name is Naaman. What a great name. And Naaman is respected. He's courageous. He's a man of valor. He's strong. He's courageous. People know who he is. He is the commander of the Syrian army, meaning he is second in charge, period. And he was not just a commander, because not all commanders are successful, but this guy was very successful. He was extremely successful. He was highly respected by his peers. He had won many victories. He was, like I've already said, and the word of God says, a mighty man of valor. He would, face, he would look at danger in the face, and he would laugh. He looked at a lion in the face, and he laughed. Maybe. I don't know if he did that. that maybe that's in, in deep in there somewhere. But anyway. But here's the problem. He was a mighty man, but he was a leper. He was a leper. Now, if you were to dig into this, he probably didn't have leprosy of the most severe kind because he was probably able to hide it, it seems. And there was no doubt he was ashamed of it and he was trying to hide it because it would likely cause him to be an outcast among his people. Someone so mighty, not wanting to be an outcast, he would hide it. He was ashamed of it. For example, if he were to go and be around the Israelites, they would call him unclean and he would be an outcast from that day forward. But the great thing was that someone who knew Naaman, someone who was close to his wife, knew of his problem, knew of his affliction, and she said, hey, I've heard of a man. I know a man. 
His name is Elisha. If you'll go to him, you'll be healed. Elisha, if you do not know, or you might know, but he was a, the protege. He was a disciple of Elijah. That's who he was. When Elijah died, double portion of his anointing was given to Elisha. Elisha was given a double portion. He saw Elijah go up into heaven in a chariot of fire. Wouldn't that have been really sweet? I mean, that's a way to go. But anyway, and he went on to perform exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah did. So Naaman hears of this man, and he is desperate. And he says, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to go for it. And so he gets permission from his boss, his Lord, and he says, can I want to go visit this prophet Elisha? And he says, you can. In hopes of being healed, he took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, which is equivalent to the yearly wage in that time of 600 common laborers. Incredible. And in verse 9, he comes into town. He comes to Elijah's house in a mighty way. In a chariot with all his entourage behind him, he rolls in like a boss. And he comes to Elisha. The Bible says he stood at Elisha's door. But Elisha doesn't come out to meet him. He doesn't come out and talk to him. He sends someone else to go speak on his behalf. And this messenger says to Naaman, Go and dip in the Jordan River seven times. Your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. But Naaman, as we read, did not like this one bit. Because it didn't go how he thought it was going to go. He was a mighty, respected, powerful man. And this, this prophet didn't even have the respect to come out and speak with him. He thought, this man's just going to come out. He will call on his God. He will wave his hand over my leprosy and I will be cured. But instead, Elisha sends out someone else. He says, go to the Jordan River, which was about probably 25 miles from where they were, one way at this point. And he said, go there and dip in the Jordan River seven times when there were much cleaner, much more desirable rivers right by. That would be like if I told you, go dip, go dip in the ditches of Brosley, which is where I grew up, instead of going and dipping in Current River. Don't go do that. You might grow another limb. I don't know how I don't have another limb. I'm being honest. I swam in that stuff. But anyway, as we read in verse 11, verse 11 says this. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call, and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. But as we read on, luckily... The guys that Naaman had with him convinced him, hey, we're here. Why not? So Naaman goes and he does exactly what the man of God was told to tell him to do. And he dips in the Jordan River seven times. Not only was he healed, but he was cleansed and restored. As we read, he got more than he bargained for that day. He encountered the one true God in a powerful way. Not just something physically took place, not just was the leprosy gone and his skin restored to that like a child's skin, but something happens on the inside of this man. This man who didn't know who the God of Israel was. Something powerful takes place. He claims allegiance 
to the one true God and he repents of worshiping the gods of Syria. It's an incredible story full of incredible things and there is so much you can take out of this. There's so much to glean from, so much to learn from, but I'm just going to give you four things and it was tempting to give you six or seven, but just four. So if you see something, you're like, why didn't he talk about that? Well, that's, that, that one's for you. You and the Lord can talk about that. But we're going to go through four. Are you ready? Okie dokie. Even if you're not, here we go. Number one. Number one. There is absolutely nothing you can do to impress God. There's absolutely nothing that you can do to impress God. A part of the reason that Naaman was so upset when he received instruction from Elisha's messenger is because he thought Elisha would be pleased to come and talk to such a mighty man, such a respected man. He thought that Elisha would jump all over the opportunity to rub shoulders with this man. That's what he thought. Because everyone else treated Naaman this way. Everyone else did. But Elisha, being obedient to God, didn't go out and speak with him, which was an incredible, huge shot to Naaman's ego. Huge shot. Now, as you read this story, it's really easy to critique Naaman. This point, this lesson literally smacks you right in the face. Super easy to critique him. Super easy to call out Naaman for his pride and arrogance. But how often have we, how often do we do the same thing? How often do we treat others the way Naaman treated other people? How often do we approach God like Naaman approached God? Remember, Elisha worked on behalf of God. He was the prophet. He was the spokesperson of God. How often do we approach God like Naaman approached him? How often do we say, look at me, God. Look at what I'm doing. I'm lifting my hands today. It's incredible. I'm even moving my feet a little bit. That's why I don't, move. I don't know how to move my feet. That's why I don't do it very often. Look at me, God. I'm feeding the poor. Look at me, God. I, I was in my Bible for an hour today, and I wrote in my prayer journal, and then I text my friend about you, and I invited him to church. Aren't you impressed? Aren't I incredible? Isn't what I'm doing awesome? I haven't even missed a Sunday night service all year long. Look at me. Aren't you impressed? The fact of the matter is, is that there's nothing you can do to impress God at all. You just can't. He's not impressed by anything we have. He's not impressed by anything we do. God is the most impressive being in the universe. How can we possibly think that we can impress him? Some of y'all don't like this. This probably bothers some of you. It's you overachievers out there. I see you. I see you. This shouldn't bother you at all. Not in the slightest bit. This should bring you peace. 
you, I, need to grab hold of the fact and remember and understand that without God, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Everything, every single thing you do, every talent you have, every meal that you eat, every paycheck you get, every award you win, every breath you take is because God said so. It's because God gave it to you. It's because God allowed you to. Period. End of story. You can do nothing unless he says you can. 2 Kings 5.1, a man who wasn't even a man of God. The Bible says that the Lord had given Naaman his victories. He didn't do it. The Lord did it. You can't impress God. But you can please them. You can impress them, but you can please them. Hebrews eleven six, just a few scriptures that talk about pleasing God and how to. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Galatians one ten. One ten. Am I seeking to please man or God? Romans eight eight. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You may think, well, I might not be able to impress them, but I can please them, and I can please them more than other people. Quiet out there. That mindset is flawed and lacks understanding because you only have the ability to please God because he gave you the ability to please him. You can't even do that. In your own power. That's why Jesus had to come, people. Because we couldn't please God. And when we do please God, when we give Him our life, and we are obedient, it's not our power at work within us. It is simply submission to the work of the Holy Spirit. And you can't even submit on your own. You need the Spirit to help you submit to Him. We can do nothing, people. We've got to get rid of this mindset. We live in America, and we can do whatever we want, whenever we want it. But I'm going to let you know something. You might be able to, but you can't unless God says you can. Period. End of story. You can't impress God. You can please Him, but you can't even do that unless He lets you. We've got to keep going. And honestly, all these points deserve their own sermon. They could have their own sermon, but we're going to number two. Number two is this. Don't... Place your preconceived notions on God. Don't place your preconceived notions on God. Naaman assumed he thought he knew exactly how this encounter with Elisha was going to go. We see it right here. It's written out plain as day. He said, he, I'm going to come. He's going to wave his hand over me and I'm going to be cleansed. I thought I would do this. He would do that. And then this would happen. That's what it says. He could have never came up with in his mind the way this was going to go. What can we learn from this? We need to be sure. You need to be sure that you stop placing your preconceived notions on God when you approach Him. Let me explain. How do you approach reading your Bible? 
How do you approach spending time in private prayer? How do you approach the gathering when you come to gather for a service? How do you approach going forward at an altar call? Do you place your preconceived notions? Do you think you already know the way it's going to go? When an evangelist comes in the building, when you're at church camp, kids, do you think you know, well, God's going to do it this way? Do you approach things believing you know how it's going to go? Or do you come at them with an open mind, with a mindset of saying, I'm going to allow you to do whatever you want to do, God. I want you to do whatever you want to do with a whatever it looks like, whatever it sounds like attitude. We sing that song, but do we live it out? Do we even do that? Do we even approach God saying, God, whatever you want to do today, whatever you want to do when I open my Bible, however long you want me to be here, whatever it looks like, whatever it sounds like, I submit to what you want. I don't have a preconceived notion over this time together. I simply am submitting and opening myself up to you. I want what you want, not what I want. How many times, how many times have we missed out on what God wants for us in the moment because of our preconceived notions, because of what we want, because of what we think, because of the way we think we, that it's going to go? How many times have we left our knees? How many times have we left the altar? How many times have we left the service Placing our preconceived notions on God and missing out on what He really wants to do. This even happens at church services that you come into with a high expectancy. And this, let me, there's nothing wrong with a high expectancy. I hope that you have a high expectancy when you come in the house of God. But when we come in and say, I bet God's going to do this. I bet he's going to move this way, blah, 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 blah. It's a bunch of garbage. It's a bunch of garbage. I'm Pentecostal. We are Pentecostal. Are you Pentecostal? Okay, some of you are. As Pentecostals, and I can speak to this because I am Pentecostal, when we see other denominations who don't believe the way we do, who think that the gifts, that speaking in tongues, that the baptism died with the prophets of the New Testament. When we, and the apostles of the New Testament, when we come across those people, it's really hard to not say or think. Maybe you haven't said it out loud. Maybe you've just thought it. But, man, those, you, you ever thought, I know I have. Those people, they need to let God out of the box. You know what I mean? Have you ever said that or thought that? Here's some truth. We Pentecostals are really good at doing the same thing. We're really good at it. We put God in our box. It's a Pentecostal box, but it's a box. We got to let God out of his box because he's too big for it. 
Our God is too big for any box. We have to stop chasing old feelings. Stop chasing old moves. Some of y'all are waiting on a certain song to get played on a Sunday so you can encounter the presence of God like you want to. You're not really chasing God at all. You're chasing an old move. You're chasing an old feeling. And when that song's played and your emotions start to stir, that's all that it really is. Ouch. we got to stop trying to make things go the way we want to go. we got to stop restricting God. We're Pentecostals, people. Instead, let us enter the presence of God. Let us approach God taking our hands off the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. With an open mind, you're welcome. I would be glad to serenade you anytime. Just give me a call. With an open mind. An open heart where we really say, God, whatever you want. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you did that? Where you said, God, this 15-minute devotion before I go to sleep is not enough. I want what you want. God, I don't care what time I leave service tonight. It's whatever you want. When's the last time? Imagine what God would do if in your personal devotion, on a Sunday, on a Wednesday, wherever, if you approached him and just said, hey, whatever it looks like, God, I don't care if it's loud. I don't care if it's quiet. I don't care if there's dancing. I don't care if there's weeping. I don't care if it's short. I don't care if it lasts long. I don't care if anyone lays their hands on me tonight. I don't care. I don't care if I get slain in the spirit or if I'm overwhelmed with conviction. I don't care. Whatever you want. Should we come in the house of God? Once again, with expectation, yes. But we should not expect that we know how it's going to go unless God tells us how it's going to go. Moving on. Number three. You're like, this is a long sermon. You're like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty long. You'll get over it. Number three. Let's get it. Number three. You guys don't think I'm funny tonight. You know, go back and listen to this, and you might appreciate how funny I am. Number three. Some of y'all didn't think that was funny. Brooks, I love you, man. Thank you. I just, I look over there, I say, he gets me. He gets me. Number three, your obedience to God is better than any sacrifice you can offer him. Your obedience to God is better than any sacrifice you can offer him. Naaman headed to Israel and Elisha's house, his residence with a sacrifice. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. He knew what he was willing to give up to get his healing. He knew exactly what he was willing to part with. He knew exactly what he was willing to sacrifice. Even though Elisha didn't ask for it, God didn't ask for it, that's what he came with. Now, I understand this. I understand that likely 
The reason he brought these things was because he was going to give them to the king of Israel because he wanted safe passage. He wanted to make peace. I understand that. But nonetheless, it was a sacrifice. But what did it take? What did it take for Naaman to be healed that day? Obedience. Obedience. God wasn't interested in that sacrifice that day. Elisha wasn't interested in that sacrifice that day. God was looking for obedience. He had to be obedient to the voice of the Lord. And what he was instructed to do was not convenient. It was not something he wanted to do. It was not something he wanted to sacrifice. He didn't want to go to the nasty Jordan River. He didn't want to travel 25 miles one way. He'd already been traveling for a long time. He didn't want to dip seven times in this river. But luckily, his boys convinced him. You need to get the right people around you. That, his boys convinced him. And he did what God said to do, and he was healed. Here's the thing. If he would have tried a different river, if he would have only dipped two, three, four, five, even six times, nothing would have happened. Nothing at all. We see a perfect example of this going the opposite way. 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. I'll read it right out of the Bible, right here, right now. 1 Samuel 15, 22, 23. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Heavy words. 1 Samuel 15. We see God instruct Saul to go in, go to the Malachites, and devote everything to destruction. God says, go in and kill and destroy and burn it all. But Saul thought he was cool. Saul thought he knew what was best. Saul only wanted to be obedient to the point that he wanted to be. So Saul went in. He destroyed some, not all. He spared the king. And he only destroyed what he despised and thought was worthless. Saul says in verse 15, I kept the oxen and the sheep to sacrifice to God. That's what he said. But God told him to destroy everything. Samuel tells Saul in these verses, to obey is better than sacrifice. He says, God has rejected you as king. In the beginning of the chapter, he tells him that he regrets even making Saul king of Israel. Heavy Heavy message, heavy word. Sacrifice versus obedience. To sacrifice to God is to offer something to God that you value with no hope of getting it back. It involves the choice of the person who makes the sacrifice. But obedience to God means we do what God tells us to do. The Holman commentary says obedience is to hear God's word and act accordingly. 
Biblical obedience means to hear, trust, submit, and surrender to God and His Word. We need to be obedient to His voice. We need to be obedient to His laws and commands. And we need to be obedient to the words of Christ. The Dake says, Obedience is more important than all forms of religion. Sacrifices, offerings, ritual ceremonies. It is the chief end of all religion. Rebellion and stubbornness are a manifestation of failure in conforming to the truth. In other words, obedience is the supreme and ultimate test of our faith in God. Obedience is the supreme and ultimate test of our faith in God. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is an impossible to please him. What good is it, my brothers? James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some of you will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You say you believe the word of God. You say you believe the words of Christ. But are you obedient to them? Because just saying something means nothing unless you do it. It means nothing. To disobey God is to say without saying it that God doesn't know best. When you disobey God, that's what you're doing. You're saying, you know what? God, you know, today... In this matter, you don't really know best. That's why people take stuff out of the Bible, because they don't like it. They don't like it. That, you're no better than them. When we do that, we're no better than the people that are taking stuff out of our sacred Bible. We're no better. When we do that, we're saying, you know, our ways today, our thoughts, I have higher understanding. You know, you know I'm just on another level, God. That's what we say. And when you hear me say that, that's absolutely ridiculous. And far from the truth. Who you obey, who you obey shows who you really put your faith in. Who you obey shows who you really put your faith in. Who are you obeying? You're like, will this guy get over? I'm almost over. Calm down. Number four. Number four. Here we go. God has more for you than you could ever possibly ask, think, dream, or imagine. Naaman came to Israel to see Elisha to be healed of leprosy. When he dipped the water seven times, when he came up the seventh time, he was just expecting for the leprosy to just be gone, to just fall off and to vanish. But his skin wasn't just healed it was restored his skin was restored to the skin of that of a baby but that wasn't it that wasn't all that happened that day Naaman experienced the power of the one true God the power that he had been looking for all his life the power he had never felt in those houses of worship in the gods in the houses of the gods of Syria Naaman experienced the presence of God he experienced 
the healing of God. He experienced what it felt like for his soul to be restored. He experienced what it felt like to really be clean. That day, Naaman repented of his sin and gave his life to God. He repented of worshiping other gods that very day. Maybe you grew up in church like me. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you know this story before I ever preached this sermon. Maybe you don't. Maybe your experience is different than mine. Maybe not. I say all those maybes to say this. My question is this. Why is it that we don't focus... Excuse me. Why is it that we focus more on Naaman's physical healing than we do his repentance. Why? Now, I've been in church all my life. I did some simple math, and I figure I've heard between four and 5,000 sermons in my lifetime. Somewhere in that region, right? So when I, I, of course, can't remember them all, and chances are you might not remember this sermon in five years, and that's okay, And I don't know how many sermons I've heard from this story, but I've heard several. And either by what stuck out to me when I was listening or when I read or what I was taught, I don't ever remember the salvation of Naaman being the focal point of the story. Why is this the case? Even the heading, even the heading of the story, in my Bible at least, says Naaman... Healed of leprosy. When you think of Naaman, you think of Naaman the leper, right? That's what we think about. We've got to stop. If you haven't heard me all night, we've got to stop viewing salvation as an event. We've got to stop viewing salvation as a moment. We've got to stop viewing the gospel as being elementary. We've got to stop. We've got to stop believing that the gospel of Jesus is something we graduate from. Because it's not. The healing of Naaman is powerful. It's miraculous. It's incredible. It's worth talking about. It's worth preaching about. It's worth focusing on. It's the heading of the stinking passage. But how much more incredible and miraculous and powerful is the fact that Naaman, a Gentile, repented that day before the new covenant. How much more incredible is that? If you don't know, it is. It's much more incredible. I love this. I love it. Tim Keller, a pastor, preacher, author, puts it this way. Please listen. The gospel is not the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christian life. It's inaccurate to think that the gospel is what saved non-Christians and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. Salvation's not a moment. 
The gospel is not elementary. It's lifelong. Salvation is a journey. It's not a moment. It's something we grow in. Period. Are we changed in an instant? Yes. But we are continually being changed and becoming more and more like God. And instead of just trying hard, I'm just going to try hard. I'm just going to grit my teeth. I hate porn. I hate sin. I hate alcohol. Instead of doing that, if you'll submit to the gospel, if you'll submit to the power of Jesus, you'll understand that those things you're holding on to, those things you have a grip on, that you think have a grip on you, you're the one holding them. And if you would just walk in the freedom of Jesus Christ, if you would understand this Bible, if you would understand the gospel, you would understand sin has no hold on you. You're holding on to it. If you would believe the gospel, if you'd let it transform you, instead of just, I'm going to try hard, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do harder, I can do this. Submit to the gospel. Grow in the gospel. Believe the gospel. Period. It's the A to Z, people. It's the A to Z. It's everything. What good would it have been for him to just be healed that day? Not only was he healed, But he's in heaven right now. That's where he's at. How much better is that than a temporary moment? Now, God has more for us than we could ever ask, think, dream, or imagine. Luke 10, 20. Do not rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you. I'm about to close. But rejoice that your names are written in the book of Lamb's book of life. Should we focus? Should we, should we seek all that God has for us? Yes. Should we seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit? You bet. Should we desire to see God move in powerful ways? Yes. Should we desire miracles, signs, and wonders? Yes, yes, yes. But don't forget that the gospel is what makes that possible, period. In our Pentecostal circles, we have to stop putting the focus so much on the baptism. And we need to get worried about the first work before we worried about the second work of the Holy Spirit. And we need to remember that the first work, which is salvation, is more important than the second work. It's more important, people. The first work of the Holy Spirit. Stop treating the second work like it's more important. Is it important? Is it vital? Is it for everyone? Yes, yes, yes. This past year and a half, this past year and a half, I have talked more like this about the gospel than ever. I see you people. I see you. I see you. And I think they don't understand. They don't get it. They don't get how good Jesus is. They don't get how powerful he is. They don't get how good the grace of God is. They don't get the freedom that they really have. They don't get it. I've been trying to scream it as God works in me and reveals more to me about the gospel. I've been trying to scream it from the rooftops in youth, in other places, that Jesus Christ is Lord and he's good and he loves you and he wants to know you and he's better than you could ever think. Ask, dream, or imagine he has more for you than you will ever know. We'll never, ever fully appreciate the gospel until we stand before God and he says, well done. And we see people condemned to hell. 
enthroned in that fiery pit, will never appreciate it until that day like we should. And even then, even then, we might not fully grasp just how good the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. Would you stand?